not a cluster of grapes to eat, or a first ripe fig which I crave. Every person has perished from the land, and there is no upright person among men. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net. Concerning evil, both hands do it well. The prince asks, also the judge, for a bribe, and a man and a great man speaks the desire of his soul. So they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright like a thorn hedge. The day when you post your watchman, your punishment will come. Then there confusion will occur. Do not trust in a neighbor. Do not have confidence in a friend. From her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. Your, for son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are men of his own household. But oh, after me, oh, sorry. Yeah, you got into that. That's cool. <laughs> so look at verse one. What was he looking for? Verse one and two. Great well, yeah, it's like it's like somebody looking for a good grape, looking for a, a good fig. What was he looking for? Righteous people. Yeah, and what was he finding? Wicked. Yeah. He just couldn't find a good person. It's so aggravating. You know, you're trying to find something, a good piece of fruit to eat. You know, you can't find it. You ever, uh, in the wintertime, gone to the store looking for a good tomato? You know, or a good strawberry or something like that? And they all look terrible. You know, that's what he was finding. There wasn't any godly people left. It was so discouraging. Um... We long for other righteous people that we can join with and have fellowship with and uh, feel some companionship with. He couldn't find any. They're all what? What, 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 what did he find? So what did he find? something, all right. He found murder. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's what he found. <laughs> Lying in wait for bloodshed, hunting the other with a net, you know, constantly trying to defraud and exploit and overreach their neighbor. <laughs> that's what he found. He found people you couldn't trust. You know, he, yeah, don't you love verse 3? Concerning evil, both hands do it well. They had great dexterity in doing wrong. <laughs> That's the only thing they really did well was to sin. <laughs> Isn't that pathetic? You know, that's what he found. It's, but they, it's just it's just sad. The prince and the judge, what do they demand? A bribe. This is not they accept bribes. This is they require bribes. That's the way that is in some places. You know, you can't get justice without a bribe. Isn't that a, you know, very uh, sad situation? Uh, he says the best of them are like a briar, the most upright like a thorn hedge. You better watch yourself. <laughs> you know, they're going to they're gonna double cross you. They're going to cheat you. It's just chaos, confusion. When people don't have righteous, godly standards, it's hard to even do a business deal. There's nothing you can do that'll work out fairly and righteously. Everything just gets confused 
it's every man for himself. Better watch your back. Don't know, you can't ever trust anybody. You can't trust what they say. You can't trust their signature. You can't trust the handshake. You can't trust anything. It's just so, it's such a, com- uh, a confusing, complicated mess. It says, don't trust a neighbor. <laughs> you can't do that. Not even a friend. You know, you can't even trust your family members. There's no guarantee that they're not going to double-cross you. So it leads to suspicion, distrust, and just a breakdown of society. When you, when you lose all ethics, you don't have much left. That's the way it was among God's people in Micah's day. It's a shame. You quit respecting God. You know the next step? You don't respect people either. The people who don't love God end up not loving their neighbor. They're related. Comments and questions? In the former part of verse 4, just slays me. I mean, the best of them is like a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. I don't that's not good at all. I mean, the, 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 I mean, the, the most righteous are still so bad. I mean, it's just, I don't know. Yeah, you're right. I don't know. It's just so, I don't know. It's just, it's just, I think he meant it to be said in kind of an entertaining and almost like, what? That's how bad it really was. I, t- I mean, I mean, aren't there times that you almost feel that way? You know, maybe maybe we would typically say this about politicians. You know, do you ever get the feeling like the best ones we've got you can't trust? You know, it's just it's just discouraging. Maybe you feel that about people in in the, the entertainment industry. You know. The, the ones that are really the most virtuous, you find out they've, you know, just been running around on their wives and doing this, that, and the other thing. And, uh, and, and really, I mean, there's a lot of ways in which there's a lot of, you know, our society that's like this. And, and it, just, it just leads to such degeneration of the whole social fabric. When we don't serve the Lord and do what He says, it just messes everything up. Nothing works right. It's shocking to me to think that this is not written to Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> <laughs> this is written to God's chosen people. Yes. You know, and I, and I think when you know when we read this, one of the applications that we have to make is. Is this the church today? I mean, is, is this is, could this legitimately be said to us if we become so consumed with what is best for me, and I, you know, I, I, I entertain myself with my religion, and I, I would always be at the building when I need to be at the building, but I'm I'm, I'm as wicked as anything else because you know I, I get along with you just fine. Until you suggest something that I don't want to do, and 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 my my selfish desires and wanting wanting this wanting things my way have caused me to to exist in a state where where there's nothing righteous in me. This, this is God writing to His people. Yeah, that that is the question, and I mean, you know, there's way too many brethren 
us that you can't trust. That you sure wouldn't want to be in business with or have working for you or whatever. There's way too much immorality of every sort among Christians. Just shocking, horrible kinds of things. And again, is it us? I mean, you know, what does God think when his people behave like this? Well, he thinks it's time to destroy them. That's what he did. I mean, Israel was just, you know, days away from going to captivity. Judah wouldn't be too long behind. God finally just gets fed up and he punishes them. Other comments? Yes? Now, wouldn't it be nice if we all could, if we could live in a world or in a country where we, we knew we could trust everybody around us, where we knew that everybody we dealt with was going to do the right thing? And I think that's why the kids look forward so much to going to camp, because for one week, they get a step out of the world. Yes. Yes, you're exactly right. I mean, what you see is living in this kind of culture is so just horrible and it's it, it's just not not comfortable it's uh, tense it's, it's you know you see what God's will is is so much better for us and absolutely we could live in this kind of a world wow God God's ways are so much better why have why have men constantly perverted them and again we need to be really careful it ought to be what it ought to be is that among us as Christians, we have that, you know, mini world that that's true. But that's what it should have been in Israel. And the terrible thing is, they had become like the Canaanites. They they become just as bad. We've got to constantly guard ourselves. We've got to make our world righteous. We have respect for God and His will. Good come. Yes, right. Uh, I'm trying to think. I don't want to word this. Uh, I, I'm thankful to God. Kind of going along with that, what Adam was saying. Um, that the the Lord's Church. I hope that you know that us as the Lord's Church does don't ever uh, represent Christ as something unholy. But we're always trying to do what's right. Because I mean, I I work with uh, you know people in, in denominations. Who I mean, they're so. I mean, I know some Christians you know that are part of the Lord's Church that. Uh, you know, we all have our weaknesses and stuff, but it's not so open, though. You know what I mean? When I talk with people and stuff, I mean, that's different. It's kind of like, I guess, secret sin. But, but I know denominational people I work with that are so open about just uh, cussing or joking about things that they shouldn't. Or uh, a lot of people I work with are always uh, showing nude pictures on the cell phones with each other at work and stuff. And everyone knows that I won't have a part of it, like, at work. And, uh, and it's even funny because, I mean, well, uh, it's not really funny, I guess I use that word properly, but the, the, some of the denominational people will if they cuss around me or do something wrong around me they apologize to me and I'm like, well, it's not me you need to apologize to. I mean, like, I appreciate I understand why they're doing it, but I think it's just weird that, I mean, they're they they understand that I'm of the Lord, but they claim to be of the Lord too, but they're not like apologizing to God or like trying to repent, but they say sorry to me as if I'm something important, you know, and I'm just like I don't know, it just kills me, and I don't understand why they don't understand. Well, and you see how those things really cause God's name to be dishonored and, and disgraced yeah, when somebody claims to be. Yeah. You know, we're people of God, and we do that. Then, you know, people think, well, you must not have much of a God. And think about us. You know, we claim to be God's special, chosen people. We're His church. Wow. <laughs> You know, what do people think of the Lord when we misbehave like they did? 
So it's very important that we learn the lesson from this and we just not act like this. Anything else? All right, how about 7 to uh, 13? Therefore, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me forth to the light. I will see his righteousness. Then she who is my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her. Now she will be trampled down like mud in the streets. In the day when your walls are to be built, in that day the decree shall go far and wide. And that day they shall come they shall come to you, from Assyria and the fortified cities, from the fortress to the river, from sea to sea, and mountain to mountain. Yet the land shall be desolate uh, because of those who dwell in it and for the fruit of their deeds. Okay, this is where we transition. In this section, from the sinful present and the judgment to the redemption and salvation after he's punished them. Now, what Micah said he would do is what in verse 7? Yeah. Yes. He, he knows God will hear him. So what's he going to do? He's going to watch, watch and wait for the Lord to respond. That's all we can do. You know, he doesn't surrender to depression. But he expresses confidence the Lord will answer his prayer. There may be times when things aren't very good. And we've got to just wait on the Lord. Call to him. And ultimately, God will turn the tables. And the true people of God will gain the victory. He says, don't rejoice over me, my enemy. <laughs> you know, your celebration over my demise is premature. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. Even when things look bleak for God's true people, God is with them, and in the end, He will turn the tables. He will give the victory. And so, He's willing to bear the indignation of the Lord. He acknowledges the justice of His suffering. I've sinned against the Lord. But God will ultimately bring me out to the light. And the enemy will end up you know, covering his face and and realizing uh, that 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 God has vindicated his people. God will ultimately give the victory to his people. In the end, they will be restored. They'll build the walls. Their boundary extended. The people will come to him from everywhere. And all this is really looking forward to the coming of Christ. How in Christ there was blessings again for God's people. There was security. There was a great influx of people from everywhere into the people of God. It's amazing the mercy and grace of God that even out of this wicked people, God was going to bring forth through the suffering and the judgment a purified remnant that he'd be able to bless and glorify. And so, you know, we may feel overwhelmed sometimes in situations where even brethren are, are really not righteous. But if we'll wait for the Lord ultimately and, and serve Him, we can trust Him to be with us and to right the wrongs. So, we, so he, He's ending this on a hopeful note. You know, the prophets are almost always the sinful present 
the judgment in the near future, and the ultimate blessings through Christ in the far future. Comments and questions on this? Um, in verse 8, um, it's almost as if the writer here is kind of like caught up in all this, uh, all these other people's doings. Like he's a victim of their oppression or whatever, but he's looking to God and he can actually deal with that oppression or whatever, whereas people who don't have God in this situation are just in chaos and all that sort. You're right. Yeah, you're right. Other comments? So much better to be with the Lord. Hmm. Amen. I have about 14 to uh, 20. I think Micah representing the nation. And so, yes, it very much does change. In, in Micah, you have the, the three sections. And in each of the sections, he starts out with the sinful present and the judgment. And then at some point in the section, he changes. And he looks forward to how God will bless them after he's punished them. And so you do have that transition right here. Micah, standing for the nation, maybe standing for the righteous remnant in the nation that do turn to the Lord and look to the Lord and ultimately will be blessed even though there's punishment in the near future. That's one of the hard things about the prophets, I think, is how quickly we can change gears. We kind of jump forward. It's kind of like the prophets are balanced preachers. What would you think about a preacher who only had one note you know, he only preached on eternal judgment. You need to preach on eternal judgment, but there's a time to give hope to those who are trying to follow the Lord's will. Or a preacher who only preached on the blessings of heaven. Well, that's great, but there's a time to warn about the, the punishment to come. Well, the prophets will give both sides, the punishment and the salvation. So now we move to the salvation section of this part of Micah. That's the way I see that, but definitely a change of point. Other comments? Good, good question. Okay, 14 to 20. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your heritage, who dwells solitarily in a woodland in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Galeed as in days of old. Uh, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them wonders. The nation shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall uh, put their hand over their mouth. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall crawl from their holes like snakes of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of you. Uh, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. Okay. So you see this beautiful picture now of God in what role? He's shepherding. And when God shepherds, he does it upright. You know, he's got his scepter. He brings his people where? 
Bashan and Gilead. Now, why Bashan and Gilead? Yes, noted for the great pasture land. Do you know where Bashan and Gilead were? Or are? Bashan is in Manasseh, I believe. Yes. West of the Capernaum over in that area. Yeah, east of. East of, I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Over on the right-hand side of the Jordan River, you know, up, you know, basically, you know, around the Sea of Galilee, down a little lower than that in, in, in as well. And uh, it was just noted as being almost like the Great Plains of, uh, of that area. And uh, there's a passage, for example, in Amos that uh, speaks of the women of Israel as being the cows of Bashan. And uh, the point of that is they're a bunch of fat cows. Uh, because Bashan is a rich pasture ground. You grow good big cattle there. And uh, so, but this is where you'd want the Lord to pasture you. In a place where there's abundant uh, uh, fields and, and uh, so forth. So God's providing. You know, he's providing the very best for his people. He's going back to like the days when he led them out of Egypt, where he did all these miracles, and he brought them redemption and deliverance. Now, again, this picture we should see, I think, in Christ. He is the good shepherd. And uh, in John 10, is she come in and out and find pasture? This is, this is talking about through Christ, the blessings he gives to the, his people. And uh, the nations see this, and they're amazed and overwhelmed by the pearl of great price, and they come trembling to the Lord. They want a part of this as well. Uh, so, so this is a picture where God exalts His people, and He brings others to join with His people. This, isn't it amazing, the grace and mercy of God, who would take a people so despicable, and through punishing them, purge out a remnant that he could bless like this. Um, in verse 16, you're kind of explaining that. What does he mean by putting their hand on their mouth and their ears will be deaf? Have you seen that? That's a good question. I think it's the idea that they reject competing um, loyalties. They won't listen anymore to the idols. They put their hand on their mouth. They realize they need to quit talking. And, and they start responding to God and not these other things that they've been worshiping. I think that's the idea. So they come to the Lord. You know, they've been humble. They're ashamed of what they've done. So they put their hand to their mouth. They turn a deaf ear to the things they've been listening to. And now they lick the dust. They come trembling to God. So, so these, these nations are turning away from their formal loyalties and coming to the Lord. Oh, okay. So, sorry, I was, I was wondering, that stopped me when I read that, that they shall lick the dust like a serpent. And I, I was just picturing it. Like, So it's just saying that they're, they're humbling them, yeah. like they're low. Yeah. It, it's saying, yeah, yeah, exactly. That was like, I didn't understand. Yeah, the, the idea of, of, of licking the dust like a serpent is almost the idea of being defeated. Okay. But, but here, they, they are. You know, when you come to the Lord, you're defeated. <laughs> you die. Yeah. You're vanquished, and you give yourself to God. So I think that's the picture of these humble nations that are actually turning to the Lord and away from everything else. 
which is exactly what you see in Christ. Isn't it amazing? You know how so many, in the book of Acts, for example, from the nations, humble themselves and turn. Think about, for example, the uh, Ephesians that, that, that became Christians that brought together their books of magic, 50,000 pieces of silver worth and had a big bonfire. You know, and that's humbling themselves. That's acknowledging, confessing their sins and, and, and throwing it all in the fire. Really turning their back on their old way of life and coming to the Lord. Which is, that's the only way to come. Any way to, can, can you come to God proudly? And, and be pleasing to Him? No. You either come to God humble, meeked, or you don't come to Him. So these are the nations that are really coming to Him truly. They, they, they tremble. They see the power and greatness of God. That's, that's what God is going to do in the future for the remnant of his people that he's been able to purge in the punishment. You know, it's, it's amazing that God's ultimate goal for these rebellious people was still to bless them. That's what God was ultimately working in all of this. Comments and thoughts? Well, I think the step comes with the punishment that he's telling them about. And, and God does two things to punish God wipes out the wicked among his people. And, and, and those who are willing to repent, then he chooses them out. They're the remnant that he's able to bless. Um, my favorite uh, prophetic passage, perhaps, is the Hosea 2 passage, where he gives the Valley of Achor as a door of hope. The Valley of Achor is where Achan and his family were stoned. That's a punishment, but that punishment then enabled the Israelites to conquer Ai and the other cities. So he punishes in order to be able to bless. He could not bless the Israelites as long as the sin was unpunished. But punishing the sin led to the victory. So God sometimes has to judge to save. Because he can't save just a wicked nation. He can't, he can't make them his people. He can't work with them. So he'll bring them through the fire and purge out the impurities purify a much smaller remnant that's faithful, and through them he can bring his blessings again. I think that's the overall concept. You see that kind of developed in various prophetic books, like that passage in Hosea 2. Good questions and comments. Look at what he says in verse 18. Who is a God like you? You remember what the name Micah means? Like yes! <laughs> How did you know that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very quick response. <laughs> yeah. So he's making a play on his own name. You know, who is like, who is a God like you? Now, you think about all the unique characteristics of God. I think this is the uniquest. <laughs> You know, 
what is God most notable for? What do you see as the most amazing feature of God? There's a lot of things you could say is power and mind. No, it's hard. It's hard not to mention that. Wow, <laughs> he's incredible. You think about his wrath and his punishment. It's pretty fierce. But I think the most surprising, the most amazing thing about God, the thing that makes him most unique, <laughs> really not quite grammatical, but is his forgiveness. He pardons iniquity, passes over the rebellious act of the remnant, does not retain his anger forever, delights in unchanging love, has compassion on us, treads our iniquity underfoot, he throws all their sins into the depths of the sea, and just totally destroys them. There are many other things that are impressive about God. But they're kind of the things that you would know God would be. Is it surprising that a God would be a powerful being? If he's a God, he's got to be powerful. Is it surprising that God would punish sins and that he'd have wrath and anger against the rebellious? Well, that's totally reasonable. I think God's the, the, the wrath judging angle of God is the most is the most logical thing there is about God. I mean, if if we had what it took, we'd punish a bunch of people too. <laughs> you know, you, you, you understand you see how holy and righteous he is? Well of course he punishes. The thing that's just shocking about God is the love and the mercy that he has. You know, he's a specialist at dealing with the sin problem. He's able to by his by his mercy. By his unchanging love, he's able to actually come out with a way to bless these people and to totally wipe out their sins. Isn't that incredible? That's just the thing about God. It's just it just keeps amazing and should just really overwhelm us. You understand how unbelievable his love is. Now, you don't understand God's love and grace until you understand the terribleness of your sins. You know, that, that's if you have a weak view of sin, the weak view of, of righteousness and, and, and what ought to be, then you'll never appreciate God's love. You know, people just kind of water down. Oh, well, I just made a mistake. You know, it's not a big deal. You know, everybody does it. Well, forgiveness of God's grace doesn't mean much to them. It's the people who really understand the magnitude, the horribleness of sin. And, and, and how God ought to punish and judge. When you, when you see all that, then these passages should melt your heart. And should just make you overwhelmed. That, why did God judge wipe mankind off the face of a planet a few thousand years ago. Why didn't he just say, I'm fed up with this. This was a failed experiment. I'm not going to deal with it. Over and over and over again. We've just done stupid, ridiculous things. We spit in God's face. And he still wants us. He's still chastening and disciplining and working with us. And, and, and working to make something out of us, and he's still willing to just absolutely drown our sins and be committed to this covenant with Abraham, faithful to his promises. That's the amazing thing. Who is like Jehovah in power and might? Nobody. In wrath and punishment? Nobody. But, but mostly, who is like Jehovah 
in his unchanging power. That's the amazing thing. This is such an interesting book in terms of its uh, beginning and end. Remember how Micah began in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1? The Lord coming down in the mountains melting under it <laughs> and just d- dissolving? You know, he came out in wrath. But he ends it with his amazing life. All right, comments and questions on this in my This sort of reminds me of Hosea chapter 11, where we talk about, um, talks about how he's going to be sending them into Assyria and not Egypt, even though he's treated them like a son. Um, in verse 9, though, it says, I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in or out. Romans 6.23 does not say the wages of sin is punishment. It says it's death, but it's through God's grace and mercy that we have just this little punishment thrown us in this life. Yes. Yeah, it's amazing. The mercy of God is just the unbelievable story. And, uh, and, and thank God that there's hope for us, because if it wasn't for His mercy, all of us deserve a severe punishment. Anything else? Oh my God. Well, it's probably a logical point at which to take a break. And uh, then we'll switch gears and work on making.